Join me together as we pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we may call upon you as such as we contemplate uh, who we are, where we are, and the things that we do. We count it a great privilege to belong to you and to say that the things of heaven belong to us because of Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, and our precious and sweet Savior. We thank you as well that we are called upon you as our Father. Uh, as we pause to think about it, uh, not very often in the Old Testament would people pray to you in that language. Uh, they refer to you often as God or Lord, but not often as Father. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, we believe that a new day of covenantal intimacy has dawned. The Son of God has come down from heaven, and with him we too may now pray to you as our Father in heaven. We thank you, therefore, that as your adopted sons and daughters in Christ, uh, that we are entitled to all the blessings of the covenant, which are yes and amen in Christ. We are also entitled to grow in love, in holiness, comfort, and peace. We pray, O oh Lord, that whether we are young or old, that you'd help us to believe what we confess with our catechism, that you are our only comfort in life and death, that neither sin nor Satan can separate us ultimately from your final and climactic love in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are not simply our destination, the one who awaits us at the end of our days. You're also our covenant partner, the one who travels with us through the valley of the shadow of death into the city of life to come. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd help us to love you in our hearts. We confess that at times our love for the things of this world is too much. Too easily do we focus our attention on the things that we can see and fail to apprehend the things that only faith can embrace. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you would forgive us for the idolatry of our hearts. We know that it is great. We pray that you would refine our love for you. We pray that you would increase our love for one another. We pray as we are commanded in scripture that we would esteem one another as more important than ourselves, that we would bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of love, which is the law of Christ as well. We think of those this day who are sick and struggling and unable to be here, perhaps uh, shut-ins who are alone and wish so much they could simply be in the presence of the people of God and sing your praise. Uh, but you who are the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows and orphans, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would draw near to these, your people. We think of those who struggle in the workplace. Uh, we think of those who have too little. We think of those who have too much. And we ask, O oh Lord, that either way that you'd help us to trust you when things are thick or when things are thin. We pray for the testimony of our families, and we ask, O oh Lord, that you would cause husbands and wives to love one another with gospel affection. Uh, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would protect our marriages and our families. Uh, we know, O oh Lord, that at times uh, they can crumble or uh, experience great challenges, and so we pray, Lord, that you'd give us grace to love one another. We pray, O oh Lord, for our covenant children. We ask that they would sense the great privilege it is to grow up in the arms of a loving family, in the arms of a loving church. And even if they don't have those things, O oh Lord, we pray uh, that you would help them to see that their true identity is in Christ. Help us to train them up well, that when they are old, they will not depart from the truth. Help them to do even better than we have done in our generation. We think of our calling as a church to be salt and light. Uh, what Jesus said of himself, that he is the light of the world. So also he says of his church that we in him have become the light of the world as well. So we pray that you help us to contemplate our missionary status in this world and to not content ourselves with anything less than all that you have called us to be. 
pray, O oh Lord, that you'd prosper the ministry of this church and this denomination. I pray, O oh Lord, for its uh, faithful sister churches and friends, some of whom may be visiting today, uh, others who love and care for this church. We think, O oh Lord, of its desire to reach out in the community around us with the gospel. And what a wonderful thing to imagine, O oh Lord, that in times to come, uh, there will be people who are one safely into the arms of this church through its gospel outreach mission. We pray for their church planning efforts as well. Uh, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would protect them from Satan, for he hates the work of evangelism and even more the work of church planning. But we thank you that we are able to say that Jesus has overcome. He's not only the planter of the church, he is her builder, he is her protector, and he's always with her. So now, Lord, as we look to you in the ministry of your word, we pray that you'd help us to look away from the things of this world, to look to heaven, and to trust you as we seek you now through the means of grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I would ask if you would, yes, I know I did that slightly out of order, but you promised you would love me. And I'd like to ask if you would now to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. title of the sermon is The Woman at the Well, and I'll be reading all of John, well not all of it, <clears throat> I'll be reading John 4 verses 1 through 30. And before I do that, just pause and remember what you're about to hear is not the word of a man, though you hear the voice of a man. Uh, what you're about to hear is the word of God, and the Bible tells us that uh, grass withers, you see that outside, <clears throat> flower fades, you see that every season. The word of God endures forever. So we strive not only to hear it, but to heed it carefully together. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. A Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone <clears throat> who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. 
and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said to him, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray now to the Holy Spirit for his blessing. Dear Holy Spirit, we pray to you at this point because we believe that it is you in particular who inspired Scripture. We believe as well that it has been you who have been pleased to preserve Scripture in its integrity down to this very day. But lastly, we believe that it is your intention to bless the reading and especially the preaching of your word, that faith comes by hearing and, the word, and that through the word of God and that through the preaching of your word, you not only raise the dead to life, but you comfort, convict, and commission your people. And so we ask now that you would have your way with our hearts. In Christ's name we pray for the glory of our triune God. Amen. <clears throat> yes, I know what that sound is. You're all putting in a mint, but I'm not looking. When I was in Holland, you know, I, I noticed the mints there were bigger than they are here. <clears throat> I have a concern about that. So as I get going this morning, I would like to ask you to begin uh, thinking about the idea of wedding bells. It might seem like a strange way to introduce the sermon, but it is the right way uh, because as we begin to work through John 4, uh, it's important that you begin to think about the theme of weddings, the theme of weddings. And I'd like to ask you this question, where did you meet your spouse? Now, I know that all of you aren't married. Uh, I know that many of you aren't even thinking about married, but you know, if you're really young, you're not thinking about married, it's, it's possible that may change someday. Uh, and for many of us who are married, we remember quite well uh, where and how it was that we met our spouse and the wonderful things uh, that God did in that context. Uh, as some of you know, I came to Christ a little bit later in life and went to a Bible college not long after becoming a Christian. Uh, I was a 20-year-old young man, 21, and uh, resolved I wanted to follow Christ all that I could and to be pure until marriage. And I began to pray. I was a kind of, you know, I wrote in a journal and kept track of my prayer requests. And the ladies in the church have an interesting way to process this, as does my wife. Uh, but I was praying for a godly, athletic hippie chick. <laughs> That's what I was looking for. That's what I was praying for. It's a little bit of my background. And I remember the day that my uh, wife came floating, not walking, floating into the college cafeteria. Her dad was the president of my uh, little Baptist Bible college. Brave move, falling in love with the president's daughter in a Baptist Bible college. But there you have it. 
And I remember looking at Heather and just seeing this beautiful young lady, uh, long brown hair. She had a braid down uh, one side. She was barefoot. She was in a broom skirt. She was absolutely gorgeous, just bouncing, barely even touching the ground. And at that very moment, uh, every other woman on the planet grew a beard and became unattractive to me. <clears throat> and the whole world got really small right around Heather. And to quote the theologian Bambi, I became from that point Twitter padded. And 22 years later, by God's grace, I feel uh, just the very same way, uh, perhaps even more. Uh, where did you meet your spouse, the love of your life, uh, if by God's grace you've done that already at this stage? Well, when we look at our text in John 4, I'd like to suggest to you is that the Bible sets a stage for us that actually leads us to think about the idea of people who have met their spouses, and that often in the Bible, weddings are actually staged at wells. So if you're single and you're hoping to be married, you need to go hang out at a well. And I think you'll be persuaded of that if we have, after we work through just a couple of texts. Uh, so before I get uh, to John 4, <clears throat> let me suggest that in the Old Testament, uh, this happens quite a bit. People often find or meet their spouses at wells. If you go back and look at Genesis 24, uh, there you have this pretty interesting story where Abraham commissions his servant. You don't have to turn there, you can just listen, turn there if you want. So Abraham commissions his servant to go down to Abraham's kindred and there find a bride for Isaac. They make this kind of strange little covenant uh, treaty, quasi handshake. The servant heads down to the land of Abraham's people. And when he gets there to this little town, he sits down where? Uh, by a well. And he prays to God, Lord, might it be that as I finish this prayer, the young lady who comes up and says, may I help you water your animals, that this is the woman that you have uh, for your servant Abraham's son, Isaac. He prays the prayer, he opens his eyes, and there is standing lovely young Rebecca, and in the background, wedding bells begin to play. Well, if it were one off, it wouldn't mean much, but there are others. Uh, Genesis 29, that I read just a little while ago, again, similar dynamic, Jacob is on the run from his brother Esau. He goes down to the land of his cousin or uncle <clears throat> uh, Levon, and he happens to come into that region and happens upon a well. In the providence of God, nothing is incidental or coincidental. Everything is providential. And so it is for Jacob who comes and he sits down by a well and he begins to enter, engage these shepherds. And who should come walking up but lovely young Rachel? I love the way it's kind of played out in the text. Uh, all the shepherds are there and they're waiting for the strategic moment to move this big stone, the way the text describes it, off the mouth of the well. But when Jacob sees Rachel, like a brave, strong young man, it says in the text that he rolled the stone away himself. I don't know if he was trying to impress her or not, but he rolls this stone off, he helps water the sheep, and he kisses her. And she takes him back to her dad. <clears throat> I have a daughter. I'd like things to be a little bit differently ordered. But so it is. They go running back, and Laban says, surely you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That language from Genesis 2, right? And in the background, wedding bells begin to play. Well, there's a third in the Old Testament, very famous scene. You know it. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses is fleeing from uh, the Egyptians. After he kills that Egyptian, he goes out in the land of Midian, and he sits down there, where? By a well, right? 
And as he's sitting there, who should show up uh, but Zipporah and her sisters. And there Moses, who becomes the great prophet of Israel, meets his, his bride at a well. It becomes like a running theme now. Wedding bells begin to play. Well, with that as backdrop then, we come to Jacob's well in John 4. And the question is, should we be thinking about weddings? It's a fair question, right? Uh, does this have anything to do with the theme that I've just set up of people meeting their spouse at a well? The answer is yes. Well, there are a couple ways that you know if you're wondering. Uh, number one, uh, where does Jesus perform his first miracle in the Gospel of John? Well, John chapter 2, Jesus goes to a wedding, and the layout is okay. He tells the servants, go get those water jars, fill them up, and he turns ordinary water into really good wine. And uh, for in my setting, I'd say, and all God's Presbyterians said, amen, uh, because we can enjoy a good glass of wine. Jesus didn't make cheap wine. He made really good wine. But again, where is his first miracle performed? It is performed at a wedding, but very careful, very important, I believe, to the Gospel of John is this little discourse that begins when people say to John, so who are you? <clears throat> who are you, John? And his answer has everything to do with weddings. He said, look, I'm not the Messiah. And he uses a metaphor. He says, I'm like uh, the best man at a wedding. I am the friend of the groom, but I'm not the groom. This is John's language. John identifies himself as what we would call the best man, and John recuses himself. I'm not the groom. I'm just the friend of the groom, and my job is to help get things ready. But the friend of the groom rejoices when the bride and the groom meet and come together. That's what a best man does. So here's the question. If John <clears throat> is not the groom, who is? That's very clear. Can't miss that one. It's Jesus. Jesus is the groom, the bridegroom, right? Very clear in the Bible. But if Jesus is the bridegroom, who is the bride? I really want to push with that. Who is the bride, okay? Uh, that's a question that the Gospel of John sets up as very important stage, like a stage being set, the pieces are now coming together, and John has raised the question, who is the bride? Jesus is clearly the groom. If you're going to have a wedding, and you've got a best man, and you've got a groom, you might need a bride. So who is the bride? Well, it's very interesting. Sometimes it's good to take a step back and look at the big pieces of the Bible. You come to Genesis, excuse me, Genesis and John, they look the same to me. You come to John 3 and you meet Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is a very important character in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> Nicodemus is everything wonderful according to Israel. He is male, he is a teacher, he is a Pharisee, he is a keeper of the law. He is the best of the best of the best, sir, according to Israel. But here's the problem. Nicodemus, who is the emblem of everything great in Israel's eyes, he's, he's the proud jewel of Israel, except for one little thing, he doesn't get Jesus in the kingdom. The best of the best of the best, sir, needs to go back to the basics, Jesus says. 
How is it, Jesus will ask him, that you who are a teacher of Israel don't understand my kingdom? How is it that you don't understand that in order even for you, Nicodemus, the best of the best, even for you, righteous Pharisee, teacher of the law, even for you, an heir of the promises made to Abraham, even you have to be born again. Now, sometimes I imagine people in the Bible, they say really dumb things. They remind me of the three stooges. You mean I got to go back in my mother's womb? That's kind of awkward. What a dumb question. That is a dumb question. That's what Nicodemus said to Jesus. Shall a man go again into his mother's? It's really just kind of embarrassing, right? But this is the best of Israel who doesn't get it. And Jesus even says to him, you don't get it. You're far away, Nicodemus, at least now. He comes back in. But also, interestingly, notice how Nicodemus comes. Beautiful little themes here. Nicodemus comes to Jesus when? In the day or at night? He comes in night. He comes under the cloud of darkness. John 1 sets up darkness as a theme, a metaphor for the kingdom of Satan that's not in with Jesus. And so Nicodemus doesn't just come, he comes stealthily. He slithers into the story and he slithers back out yet unpersuaded and he's the best Israel's got. So if Nicodemus is clearly not the bride, At this point, who is? It's very intentional. John asked the question, who is the bride and where is his, uh, who is the groom and where is the bride, right? Nicodemus comes in and it's disappointing. Now a stage is really set and you come into John 4 and this is just, to me, it's a beautiful, a beautiful text. Uh, My daughter has heard this sermon now I think 11 times because this is my favorite sermons to preach, because I love the interaction that now happens. Now that we've been, if you will, disappointed with Nicodemus, you come to a very vulnerable scene. Jesus comes in to the town of Samaria. The old King James says he, ha- he must needs go through Samaria, and he does so, and he sits down at a well. He sits down at a well, and it is the high noon heat of the day. Again, there is nothing incidental or coincidental. Everything is providential in the plan of God. Jesus isn't just passing through. Jesus is seeking and saving. Jesus is on a rescue mission of love, the love of the Father manifest in the Son, the love of the Son manifest in His coming, the love of the Son demonstrated in the work of the Spirit. Jesus is on a rescue mission, and here He comes now in the midday sun, and He sits down at a well, it is the heat of day, and there is a Samaritan woman. The text is careful to say right out of the gate uh, that this is unusual. Number one, people don't go to wells in the middle of the day. I'll come back to that. Perhaps even more importantly, think about this woman in contrast to Nicodemus. He is a male Pharisee, teacher of the law, Israelite. She is a female Samaritan, far away from the kingdom in the eyes of the Jews. The Jews literally refer to Samaritans as dogs. Jesus sits down with a female dog in the eyes of the Jews. In the heat of day, and he said he had to do it. He had to go here. Why here? Well, as they sit down, as he sits down, he says to her, it's more polite in Greek than it sounds in English, give me a drink. And she's surprised that he asked her for this drink. 
And then this conversation begins. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for water, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, there's, a, there's an English word, I'm a word nerd, that I just love. <clears throat> and it plays into this little story well. The word is snarky. Snarky kind of sounds like what it means. When a person is being snarky, they get this kind of pixely little, you know, elvish dimple. There's a, little bit, there's a little bit of sarcasm in there. There's a little bit of bite. There's a little bit of gotcha. There's a little bit of aha. And Jesus, when he says to her, if you knew who I am, who says to you, give me a drink, you would be asking me for water. And I would be giving you living water. And she says to uh, sir, you don't have a bucket. Where do you get that living water with no bucket? Gotcha. One for the Samaritan woman. And this conversation is on. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of the water that I give will never thirst again. And it will become in them a spring of living water welling up to eternal life conversation graduates. The woman says to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And at this point, it gets ratcheted up even more when he says to her, go call your husband. How does he know that? Because he's Jesus. This is God in the flesh who knows all things, who seeks and saves, and he is seeking her, and he tells her, go call your husband. And all at once, we understand now why this woman is here in the heat of day when she says to Jesus, I have no husband. And Jesus responds to her, you were right in saying I have no husband because you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. So here's how it works out. This woman, who is now at this well alone in the heat of day, is there by her design. She's there by her choice. This is a woman who has looked for love in all the wrong places and found it nowhere. She is now living with a man who is not her husband, and she has been the wife of five different husbands. She has been used and abused and discarded by the men of this world and is now with a man who's doing nothing more than using her as well. The Greek is actually quite forceful, and the English slightly sanitizes it, where it says now, the man you ha now have, literally in Greek, reads like this, the man you are now having. You are in an adulterous, immoral relationship, and the man you are now living with is not your husband. You've had five, and now you're living with this man. The reason this woman comes alone to the well in the heat of the day is because that's when the other women did not. The reason this woman comes alone in the heat of the day is because ironically, kind of like Nicodemus, she is hiding under a cloud, but Nicodemus hides under the cloud of darkness. She hides under the cloud of full sun when no other woman would bring her bucket and go to this well. She's not only been used and abused by the men of this world, she's been isolated, estranged, and become the very subject of town gossip by the women of Samaria. She is categorically alone, broken, 
an empty bucket. And notice as well, Jesus doesn't avoid this. Rather, he draws it to the surface like a good surgeon. He doesn't avoid the cancer that actually has to be addressed like a good surgeon. He actually makes her see the reality of her condition. This is love, beloved, to tell the truth. Only against the backdrop of our sins is the gospel actually beautiful and most clearly seen. And Jesus needs her to see the extent of her own depravity. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is a place where you ought to worship. This is brilliant. This is exactly what we would do, right? This is the reformed out. You get in a pickle? Talk about worship. That'll always spark a debate. She totally deflects. Jesus says, no, we're going to stay right here. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will we worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But now the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. It's not enough to talk about your mountain, woman from Samaria. It's not enough to boast in your ethnicity, Nicodemus. God is seeking true worshipers. And I want to say something kind of provocative. Uh, There's this popular phrase, seeker-sensitive worship. Worship designed for unbelievers. And I want you to know, I believe 1,000% in seeker-sensitive worship because the Bible actually affirms seeker-sensitive worship. But here's the thing, little catch. The seeker, according to Scripture, the seeker in John 4 is God, not the woman. He is the one who is seeking. He is seeking. He is saving. And those who are sought and saved become true worshipers who worship not only in spirit, but also in truth. And when he says these things to her, the woman says, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her so beautifully and simply, I who speak to you am he. Now, this is amazing. Nicodemus couldn't get it, couldn't see it, slithered away back into the darkness from which he came. But this woman broken woman, used and abused, woman of the night, woman of the town. To this woman, Jesus says so simply, I am the Messiah of Israel. I who speak to you am he. He does not withdraw from the hard questions. He does not avoid the reality of sin in her life but in his love for her. He tells her exactly who he is. In his love for her, he causes her to see exactly who she is. What is the real uh, stage of evangelism? You have to know who God is. You have to know who you are. And when you know who you are, you need to know all the more who Jesus is. That sweet, seeking Savior of his people. 
Notice again, he does not thunder at her with a loud clap of Mount Sinai, but rather affectionately uh, speaks to her as one who loves her and has come to lay down his life for her. This is a woman who has been dirtied by this world and her own sins, and yet Jesus has come to make her cleansed and beautiful and pure again. I heard someone say once that the church ought to be the safest place in the world for women. Could this woman be in any safer company than in the company of Jesus Christ? Would any man ever look at her more purely, simply, and sinlessly than Jesus Christ? Every other man in her life has used her and abused her, objectified her, and left her for trash, but not Jesus. Here is a man. Beloved, this is the measure of a man who not only looks upon her impurity and sees the beauty of her soul as one created in the image of God, he has come to do what every good husband ought to do, lay down his life. Wedding bells are playing in the background because this woman who has been unloved by every other man she's been with is now experiencing true love in Jesus Christ. Wedding bells are indeed beginning to play. The tender affection of a marriage proposal is coming together, and this woman who has had five husbands and is now with a man who is not her husband has just met the man, who not in any physical sense, but one who will become her true husband in the gospel that a beautiful, beautiful thing to imagine? All that she has lost and all the different ways she has been ravaged, and yet here is Jesus who's come in the best sense of the term to do nothing more than ravage her soul with gospel affection and purity, to clothe her again, to make her pure and lovely again, to tell her that her identity is not found in what she can do with her body, but what has been done for her soul in Jesus Christ. This is true love. This is true love. And I want to ask you, have you met this Jesus? I began the sermon by asking, do you remember when you met the love of your life? Well, I love my wife greatly, but the real love of my life is actually Christ, who is the love of your life. Have you met this Jesus, the sweet Savior of your soul, who is far more concerned with what he can do for you than for what you can do for him? sweet Savior of your soul who has laid down his life so that your sin, which is, by the way, no better or less than the woman at this well, so that your sin, your nakedness, your shame might be covered with his righteousness, with his love, that you might be clothed in him and be made beautiful again. Have you met this Jesus? Because if you have, there's something more to the text and therefore, something more for this sermon, and one of the reasons why I like to preach this text when talking about evangelism. You might be thinking, what in the world does this have with evangelism? Thank you for asking that question. I want you to notice what this woman does. Again, I told you I like poetry. I'm just kind of a nerd. Love that stuff. I think it's beautiful. I love poetic irony. Irony is beautiful to me. And there's great irony that the way this story ends is the exact opposite of how it began. The way the story begins is this woman shows up. She shows up in the heat of day because she's avoiding the town women, their town gossip. She's had enough of that. Who couldn't 
right? Everyone understands that. But notice what she does at the end, the very end of the text. It says, so the woman, when the disciples come back, left her water jar and went away into town. And what did she do? Be with me here. This is great. She said to the people, wait a minute. I thought she was avoiding the people. She's there because she doesn't want to be seen by the people. She doesn't want to be heard by the people. She doesn't want them to hear what she has to say. She wanted to be alone. And now this woman who has been used and abused by the world and the subject of town gossip goes back to the very same town and those same people whom she was avoided and she says, come and see a man who even told me everything you've been gossiping about me. He told me who I am. He told me all that I've ever done. Come see this man who not only told me, yes, I'm a wretched sinner, but I can have eternal life, forgiveness of my sins, beauty, purity, love in him. Come and see this guy. The woman at Samaria becomes one of the earliest evangelists, if I can use that term, lowercase e, in the gospel of John, simply by falling in love. When the wedding bells begin to play and her heart becomes sprinkled with the gospel and she's just a little bit Twitter padded, she does what every newly engaged person does. She has to go tell somebody. The day I proposed to Heather, I took her to the beach. Um, that's that place far, far south of here with very different colored looking snow. And I, I, I baked cupcakes. I'm not a great cook. It was a risky move. That could have killed the whole deal right there. But I baked and we went on the beach and we sat there and we did devotions together. And then I started getting nervous. She said my cheeks were shaking. And I drew a little circle around her. And I'm kind of a traditional sappy guy, old-fashioned. I got down on a knee, took her hand, proposed to her. She said yes. The clouds broke. Rainbows came through. Okay, I slightly exaggerate. I had to go to work. She's a jogger. She jogged home from the beach. She goes past uh, this lady who's out in her yard working. My wife's one of the shyest people on the planet. That's why I married her. Between the two of us, we're actually like normal people. She balances me out in every imaginable way. Uh, but Heather, who's like one of the shyest introverts you'll ever meet, stops and tells a total stranger, look at this. Some guy is in love with me and has promised to love me and take care of me all my life. She was Twitter-padded. She fell in love. Do you know what makes people want to talk to others about Jesus? I'll tell you what, it's not. It's not guilt. It's not shaming people into doing it. It's not manipulation. It's not badgering. Do you know what motivates people to want to talk to others about Christ? Just being in love with him. And I can't change that in a person's heart. But I can plead with you fall in love with Christ again. If you know this gospel so very, very well that's become perhaps all too familiar, be reminded of your own story and his own precious grace in your life. Fall in love with Jesus again. If you are new to the faith and just coming to get this, you know that, that wonderful newlywed feeling and it's contagious. Fall in love with Jesus again. Times will come when you'll get a little bit cold or stale. Fall in love with Jesus again. Listen to the great theologian Bambi. Be Twitter-padded for Christ. I've had the privilege of being here now for a few days. Get to go home in a couple. 
that assumes I survive ice fishing tomorrow, which is still in my mind quite questionable. But one of the other reasons why I like telling this story, and some of the kids will have heard this from Friday, but just in, in very short, uh, I, I did not come to Christ like so many of you. I grew up in a non-Christian home, uh, parents divorced, my dad left our family, abandoned our family when I was 12, he was an atheist, we didn't go to church, mom worked 70 hours a week, uh, I was a latchkey kid, uh, by the time I was 12 I was on drugs, by the time I was 15, heavy drugs, spent several years on drugs you'd never want to see a person get on and very few people come off well. Went to jail, shot at twice, failed my senior year of high school. This is not a very promising future, certainly not the beginnings of an Orthodox Presbyterian minister. You're allowed to smile at that. And God is providence, and when I was 21 years old, dreadlocks down to here, following a band called the Grateful Dead around the country, if you don't know who that is, you're missing nothing. And God is providence, stationed somebody as I was getting on a Greyhound bus for a week-long trip to put a Bible in my hand and said, hey, take this. You might enjoy reading it when you've got time. Three days of playing guitar in a bus, my fingers go numb, take out a Bible, have a little brother named Mark, kind of jealous that his name's in the contents, but read it anyway. And in the pages of scripture on the back of a Greyhound bus all by myself, wedding bells began to play. Where a sweet savior was seeking a wretched sinner like me. And a loving father was rescuing children in the arms of his family. And that's the crazy way I came into the kingdom of God. And you, beloved, so many of you have come in the exact opposite way, much like my wife, grown up in a Christian family, probably learned Jesus' name about the same time you learned your own name, were literally prayed over when you were in the womb, carried uh, through your life in the arms of a Christian family, in the arms of the church, right? You might not ever remember not believing in Jesus. <clears throat> and I want to say to you, that while the woman of the well has a crazy story and every reason to be Twitter-patted for Jesus and to tell other people about him, and the pastor in front of you similarly has a crazy story and all kinds of great reasons to tell people about Jesus, you do even more. I would love to have had your story. I would love to have had a whole family not gone to jail, not been shot at, not done all the dumb stuff, not go to hell in order to find my way back to heaven. If you, by the grace of God, have been raised up in the arms of this church, you have every wonderful, beautiful reason to think of Jesus as one who has kept you close and blessed you in ways that so many others uh, have not experienced. You have every great reason not only to be Twitter-padded, but to want others to come and know a Jesus who doesn't only save people from way outside, he raises up many from within. He can show us how to do life. He can show us how to do family. He can show us the meaning of love. He can make those who have been used and abused by this world feel beautiful and pure again. He can show a boy how to be a man. He can show us the meaning of life. This is Jesus, and you have this. You have this because you are his bride. You are his bride. This woman had five husbands, and she now is having a man. In the Jewish way of counting, you know six is a very frustrated number. Who is Mr. Wright? Who is the seventh and perfect husband in her life? Will provide for her, protect her, and keep her safe? It is Jesus, 
and this is his bride. And you, if you have faith in him, are his bride as well. And if you are his bride, then with being his comes his commission. And with this last point, I will end and ask you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, excuse me, 22. This should have been posted somewhere earlier. That's not it. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. This is the verse you talk about when you're having lunch today. This is the verse I'd like you to read after you have your meal and just talk about what does it mean for us to be the bride and what is our place in this beautiful love story where wedding bells are now clearly playing. Well, what does uh, this Bible end with, this final chapter Revelation 22:17. think of John 4 as I read. The spirit and the who, the bride, is not just the spirit, and it's not even said the church, although it is the church that is meant, but the metaphor is there. The spirit and the bride say what? Come. What is the first word out of the woman at the well's mouth when she goes back to the people in Samaria? What is the first word out of her mouth to those townspeople, those town men, those town women? The first word out of her mouth is come. And by the way, if you notice, it's a little provocative, but it's true. She didn't go and get baptized, she didn't go to catechism. She didn't take an EE course. You know what she did? She met Jesus. She fell in love. Her pale, broken world of all black and white exploded with color, purity, and hope. And she was so overwhelmed and Twitter padded and love. She ran back and she couldn't wait till she found people because she wanted them to find people and be wanted them to find Jesus, or better put, be found by him. So the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, this is clearly John 4, coming out of Isaiah. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life. And what will this cost you, friends? Nothing. Without price. How much did Jesus charge her for that water that wells up to eternal life? Nothing. To her it was free. But to him, it cost his life. So what does the church do until the end of the age? The spirit and the bride say to the world, come, come and see the one who has saved me from my sins. Come into a family where beauty, beauty and hope and love and joy abound. Come and meet this Jesus, the sweet savior of his bride, because wedding bells are playing. Let's pray.